Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. You know, it should really go without saying, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. I think this would be an assumption that you have of me or about me, but sometimes assumptions, I think, need to be affirmed. I don't know what everybody's laughing about. (laughs) To the depth of my being, to my absolute core, with everything that I have, I believe that Jesus is everything. I believe that Jesus is everything. Jesus of Nazareth, whom I believe to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is everything. That's not an opinion that I have formed. That is not simply a belief system that is part of my growing up and that was poured into me. It is a conclusion that I have drawn. With just over 54 years of living and nearly 45 years as a Christ follower, as someone who's been pecking away for 45 years of what it means to be a Christ follower, I have concluded that Jesus is everything. And more than that, Jesus changes everything. Put whatever you want at the end of that sentence how you view the world, how you view the people in it, how you treat the people in it, or even how you process how the world and the people in it treat you. Jesus changes everything. And it's, and it's from that place. It's, it's from that place that I approach this endeavor this morning, my endeavors every day, and most certainly this text. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles and read along with me. It is a very familiar passage, perhaps one of the most familiar to each of us. I'm going to be reading from the 10th chapter of Luke beginning with the 25th verse. Luke 10, beginning with the 25th verse. Uh, Read and listen as though for the first time. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Jesus that is, said to him, what is written in the law? 
What do you read there? The man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the man asked Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robbers? Jesus asked. The man said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, today for a few minutes, prepare us, enable us, embolden us to stop talking and to listen. Father, we bring the very best we have here today. We pray that you will Use this time to change us forever. In Jesus' name, amen. I think that most of us have a tendency to reduce the dramatic or the explosive to the benign and to elevate the benign to the dramatic or explosive. Now, I don't know why we do that. I suppose it has something to do with the need to both protect and to feed our own personal sensibilities. But we have a tendency to reduce the dramatic or the impactful, the important, the explosive to the benign and to elevate the benign to the dramatic. Put another way. We have a tendency to minor on the majors and to major on the minors. I think that's especially true of this text, and maybe it's because it's so familiar to us. We've been interacting with this text. We've been telling and retelling and hearing and rehearing this story for most of our lives, those of us who have grown up in church and in Sunday school. We reduce it to to nearly just, just, just a sweet little children's story. And it is that. 
It is a sweet little children's story. But then again, it is not. It is not just a sweet little children's story. In fact, I think it's better for us not to think of it as a story of all at all. That might be the most helpful. This is not just a story that Jesus is telling. This is a teaching. This is a teaching of Jesus straight from the lips of the one who I just said that I believe to be everything. It's not just a story, but rather a teaching. It's a big deal. It's taught in typical Jesus fashion. He seems so often to answer a question with a question. I believe quite by design that Jesus encourages us always to, to dig a little more, to work a little harder, to perhaps even struggle a little bit, to endeavor in this pursuit of following him. How do I inherit the kingdom of God you've been teaching about, this man asked. How do I, how do I live into that? How do I inherit the kingdom of God? To which Jesus replied, well, what do you think? What, what is it that's written? What have you read so far? The man says, love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's it. You got it. And then the man follows that with yet another question. And I you know, the, the, my text, my translation says in order to justify himself, I don't know, but perhaps he was just trying to be a little bit, I don't know, persnickety. But he says, okay, well, who is my neighbor? Then Jesus tells this story, the story that I just read, the teaching that I just read. And afterwards, he asked him again, so you tell me, who do you think is the neighbor here? What do you think? I think that's the way Jesus goes about it, and I think that's the way we are to go about it, and it's pretty familiar to us as answering a question with a question, dig a little deeper, endeavor a little harder, pursue a little more relentlessly because Jesus is gonna meet us right where we are. That's familiar language. Jesus is going to meet us right where we are, but then love us too much to allow us to stay there. And as we are very fond of saying here, there's going to be a next. There's going to be more. There's going to be more, there's going to be more of an unveiling, more of a discovery, because in Christ, there's never not a next. It's taught in very typical Jesus fashion. It's an explosive, dramatic story, too. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around here in the 21st century in Alpharetta, Georgia, but the first hearers would have been shocked at this cast of characters. It's hard for us to get a real-life feel for the context of priest, a Levite, a Samaritan. Sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan walk in a bar one day. I mean, it's, and, 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 you know, this road to Jericho where someone is beaten and stripped and robbed and left on the side there, it's, it's hard for us to, to really wrap our head around that, that context, to, to really feel 
the power and the, the impact of this story. So let's, let's try to put ourselves in this story for just a minute. Let's, let's imagine that this is you. Actually, let's change the context a little bit. Instead of traveling somewhere and being beaten and left on the side of the road, imagine that you are, as my daughter Katie was just a few days ago, in your car. And it's rush hour. And you are on... Highway 20, right in front of the Golden Corral at the junction of 985, headed toward the Mall of Georgia. And you're just a couple of cars from the light, cars all around you, and you're in the center lane, and your car stops. And there you sit. She called me and said, She just described what I just described to you. Let me tell you something as an aside, moms and dads. It doesn't matter how big your children grow. Oh, it just breaks your heart when they're in trouble all the time. But but imagine that that's you. And there's cars going around you and they're honking at you and saying all kind of manners of things to you and gesturing to you wildly, not necessarily positively. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, you would really want to just be sitting in the middle of traffic there with no, no where to go. Honk and honk and honk and yell and yell and screaming, gesturing. And you can't get out of the car because there's too much traffic and your car won't go. And there you sit. And then you look beside you and you see Pastor Sean. <laughs> He's in the car right next to you. And he doesn't honk at you. He doesn't yell at you or he doesn't gesture inappropriately, but he does just ride on by. (laughs) And you're going, what? You would have expected him to to stop, you know? It says JCBC Rev on his bumper sticker and you're just, I mean, on his license plate, and you're just watching that go down the road. Imagine next you look up in 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 the mirror and you see me, your connections pastor, your pastoral care guy. You know that I'm gonna stop. And I just pick up the phone and pretend like I'm on a call. Do you ever do that? Just pick up the phone and pretend on a call and pretend I don't see you at all. Pass to the other side and just keep right on going. Just imagine that 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 happens again and again. All the people that, that you would have expected to stop and to help you just kept on going and left you sitting there being the absolute object of people's anger. And then out of the blue, unexpectedly, someone does stop. Help arrives. And it arrives in the form of a person you would least expect. Someone that you may be suspicious of or afraid of or that you have categorized as undesirable for some reason. The least likely person in your mind that you would think to stop, there's, just use your imagination. You fill in the blank, whatever that may be for you. There's no shortage of examples, particularly in this, this season of, of um, election and debate. There's no shortage of examples. Perhaps it's a Syrian refugee or a refugee from anywhere. Maybe it's a laborer who's in this country illegally. Maybe it's a Muslim from Pakistan or from some other place in the world. 
It's not your pastor or your go-to people that stop to help you, but a person you wouldn't expect rightly or wrongly to help. That's what's happening here. This is a, this is a, this is a dramatic story. This is an explosive story, and the first hearers would have heard it that way. Another thing about this, this story, which I, I think is worth noting, is the identification of the neighbor. The person says, so who is my neighbor? If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, who is my labor, neighbor? And the answer to that question is a bit unexpected as well. The man asks, who is my neighbor? Who out there is my neighbor? Who can I identify outside myself in the world around me as my neighbor so I can go and love them? And we do the same thing. We ask ourselves the same question. Who out there is my neighbor? I want to love you. You can be my neighbor. I'll love you. You can be my neighbor. I'll love you. You can be my neighbor. I feel like Oprah. You get a car. You get a car. You get a car. You can be my neighbor. I'll love you. We, we, we tend to do that. We look outward in order to identify who our neighbor is so that we can go and love them. And that's the question that was quite, I don't know, innocently asked, I suppose. So who is my neighbor? Jesus answers that in this story by responding, essentially, don't worry about it. It may not be the wrong question, but that's the wrong approach. Don't look outward, look inward. Don't go find a neighbor, be a neighbor. You are the neighbor. Don't go looking for one. Don't go find one to love, be one. Jesus said, go and do likewise. This idea of neighbor is not, is not um, a pursuit of trying to find, trying to identify. It's, it's understanding that we are all neighbors and we start right there and we deal with that and what that means. And to be clear, while neighbor is most often a noun when we use it in everyday language, in this sense, it is very much a verb. It is something you do. Neighbor is something you do. It's just something you are. But in this story, it is something that you do. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go, neighbor. Thus the title of this sermon, Neighboring. So how do we go about doing that? How do we go about neighboring? There are three departure points that I think that are helpful, three kind of components to a worldview that I think kind of helps us move into neighboring as a verb and neighboring as a follower of Christ. The first thing I think we need to do is realize that we are all in this together. And I don't mean all the people in your family. I don't mean all the people in this room. I don't mean all the people in this church. I don't mean all the people in this community. I mean all people. We are all in this together. No one is any more or any less important than anyone else. No one is more or any less valuable 
than anyone else, any more or less capable than anyone else, any more or less worthy than anyone else, either any more or less of worth than anyone else. No one is superior or inferior to anyone else. We are all in this together on the whole planet. I believe until we greatly diminish the number of times and contexts in which we use the words they and them and those and even we and us, until we greatly diminish the application of those words, we will find it most difficult to love our neighbor as ourselves. Until we greatly diminish the number of times that we categorize a a person or a group of people as something outside of ourselves completely, something different from ourselves, something that's not a part of ourselves, we are going to find it difficult to love our neighbor as ourselves. I'd like to challenge you uh, to do that this week. Just do this. Just try to catch yourself. Every time you're using the word they or those, especially if you follow the word those with the word people, those people, they or those or them, just stop and, and, and check yourself as it relates to the attitude with which you're using that word. You know, I mean, sometimes it's going to be quite great. You know, I'm waiting for someone. I've just moved in this last week. I'm waiting for one, someone to say, hey, Dave, um, um, your socks are among those boxes over there. That'd be all right. But, but when you're talking about people especially, when you find yourself using the word they or them or those or, or some other separating kind of word, just, just, just check yourself on the attitude. What, is, what are you feeling when you use that word? Is it just descriptive? Is it just a way of pointing to someone? Or is there some, something else attached to it, some kind of disdain or some kind of superiority attached to it or... or um, um, some type of disrespect. We are all in this together. All across the planet. Oh man, there are people who are as different from us as we could possibly imagine. People who are different in every way, who don't believe what we believe, who would hear me say the words that Jesus is everything and think that I'm a fool. There are people who who don't believe what we believe, who wouldn't behave the way we would behave. We don't have to agree. We don't have to, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to tolerate uh, bad behavior. We don't have to, you know, um, check ourselves at the door. We can disagree. We can be different, but we're not superior. We're not superior. And until we begin to approach other people in the world That way, I think we'll find it impossible to love our neighbors as ourselves. Secondly, I find it helpful in my neighboring efforts to to simply assume goodwill. Assume goodwill. 
not everybody, but the vast, vast, vast majority of the people that we encounter and those that we don't encounter have no intention of doing you harm. There's no intention, there's no conscious effort to mistreat you or disrespect you in any kind of way. Most people, practically everyone, including ourselves, we're just doing the best we know how to do, right? We're just doing the best we know how to do. We are all the sum total of, of our experiences, our traditions, our influences, and even our DNA. All of this just kind of gets wrapped up to, to render us as to who we are. It all comes together, and that never ends, by the way. We continue to evolve or devolve, but we continue to become something different based on all of these influences and all these experiences and all these traditions and all these teachings. It all, it all comes together just to render us as who we are. We are each, of course, unique. And it's out of that uniqueness that we begin to image and to vision how the world ought to be and how the world ought to operate and how people should be and how people should operate. We have these expectations of the world and the people in the world that come from our own unique selves. There's nobody on the planet that can live up to your expectations because they're yours, formed out of your own uniqueness. And then we encounter another person for whom that process has also happened or another person for whom that process has also happened or another group of people for whom that process has also happened. Everybody is just doing the best they can with who they are. There's a couple of exceptions, of course. Of course, there always is. There are people who mean to do us harm. But by and large, we're just all doing the best we can. I think to have this kind of neighboring worldview, we not only have to realize that we're all in this together, but just assume goodwill. Let the guard down just a little bit. Let the protectionism down just a little bit because nobody's really out to get you. Everybody's just doing the best we can do. And then finally, I think we have to see, I think we, especially as followers of Jesus, I think we have to see the well-being of others as no less important than your own well-being. See the well-being of others as no less important as your own well-being. How do, you, how do you love your neighbor? How do you love your neighbor as yourself? What do you do for yourself? There are certain things, some big category things of your well-being that you pay attention to, things like food and shelter. I've been paying special attention to this idea of both food and shelter during this recent move of ours. What a nightmare. <laughs> I th let me, again, as an aside, I didn't ask any of you to help me, so I just want credit for that and <laughs> realize that that's me neighboring you. <laughs> food and shelter, justice, 
We see to that for ourselves. Safety. We love ourselves that way by keeping ourselves safe. By belonging, a sense of belonging, an acknowledgement of being a part of something or mattering or being important. Health. All of these ways that we know that, that we attend to in our own well-being and that we should attend to in others. It should be no less important for us to attend to these needs for others as it is to intend, attend to these needs for our own selves. I know that's a big order. I mean, I, I know it is. We're not really wired that way. Not really. Because, of course, we are the sum total of all of our experiences and influences and our traditions and our teachings and our DNA even. Something has taught us to protect and to, and to me first so often. We're a gracious people here. We help people all around the world as best we can. We do it as a church. You do it as, as individuals. And boy, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. But in order to neighbor well, in order to love our neighbor as ourself, then it's a matter of seeing the well-being of others as no less important than our own. But it's not just the big things. It's everything. We're talking about points of departure here. We're talking about a worldview here, a way of approaching the world, neighboring as a, as a verb coming from a particular context here. It's everywhere, not just in the big things, not just in the project-based things. I wrote this in 2008. The advantage of walking alongside you for over 11 years now in this capacity is that I get to see a lot of things. I mean, sometimes I'm disappointed. As I know, sometimes you are disappointed in me. But we're going to assume goodwill, right? We're not trying to harm each other. But most of the time, I'm just touched and inspired and impacted by watching you operate. And this was such a time, and Reverend Batson, I hope you won't mind. And Richard Eason, I'm thinking about your mother and father as I read this. From eight years ago. He'll be 84 in July. He's a preacher and has been for over 60 years. His has been a life dedicated to sharing the love of Christ with whomever is in front of him, wherever he might be. He's from a family of preachers. His father and several of his brothers have spent their lives climbing into pulpits and ministering to their respective congregations. He is rich. His is a rich and storied heritage. There's no counting the number of sermons he has preached. More importantly, there is no counting the number of hours he has spent in preparing messages of truth and encouragement for those in his congregations. It is a labor of love, the love of Christ in him. 
He has made stands with integrity, with courage, with consistency. He was essentially run out of South Carolina for refusing to compromise, to bow, to concede. His stand there many years ago was that all are equal in the eyes of God. Race, gender, social status, and economic strata do not matter. His sacrifice, his stand was a labor of love, the love of Christ in him. He moved into an assisted living facility with his precious wife, now deceased, a few years ago. It was his newest congregation. He shepherds them. He patiently rounds them up and helps them get here and there. It's a labor of love, the love of Christ in him. In his retirement, remember, he was 83, he was then, he spends his days as a volunteer chaplain at Embry-Johns Creek Hospital. He visits with every patient and their families. He prays with them. He encourages them. He lightens their load, even though it is more than a little difficult physically for him to walk those halls. It's a labor of love, the love of Christ in him. He is a legend. He is known. He is a theologian. He is a modern-day martyr. He shares the love of Christ with whomever is in front of him, wherever he might be. This past Wednesday, it was in the living room of a neighbor at Ivy Hall where he lives. Ironically, it was the same living room that he and his wife lived in when she was alive. After her death, he moved into a smaller place so as to make room for others. He had been at craft time. The project for the day was making and decorating Christmas stockings. I can only imagine what creative thoughts were going through his mind. He was not preparing a sermon. He was making a stocking. He was not delving into scripture. He was delving into felt. He was not studying theology. He was manipulating scissors and Elmer's glue. I can bet you, however, that the most prevalent thing on his mind was the woman upstairs who was keeping vigil at her husband's side. The woman upstairs who was going to say her earthly goodbyes to the man that she had been married to for 66 years at any moment. The woman upstairs couldn't make it to craft time. So he made two stockings. He came into the room balancing the creations on one arm while clutching, clutching his cane and his other. He put his cane down and spread his feet in order to balance himself and he presented both stockings to the woman and he held them out proudly. He said, do you want the Santa Claus or the reindeer? Your choice. All his theology, all his preparation, all his legend, all his martyrdom, all his ministry was summed up in that one simple question. You see, it was a labor of love, the love of Christ in him. With whomever is in front of you, wherever you are, however you can, love. With whomever is in front of you, wherever you are, however you can, neighbor, How can we see the world this way? How can we remember that we're all in this together? How can we assume goodwill? How can we see the well-being of others as no less important as our own? How can we actually 
do that. So we're not put together that way. How do we neighbor like that? Remember where we started. Jesus is everything. Remember where we started. Jesus changes everything. How we see the world. How we see the people in it. How we treat the people in it. And how we think about and process how the world and the people in it treat us. Jesus changes everything. Go neighbor. Go neighbor. Go neighbor. Go neighbor.